This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'll wrap up our discussion about two kingdoms. But before I get into that, I just want to remind you, if you'd like to send me a note or ask a question, you can use this email address, ancientpathspodcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to communicate with me about anything related to what I've said, or perhaps you have a question you'd like me to address. I'll be glad to do all of that. I'll be checking that email regularly and do hope to hear from some of you. Well then, in part one of this series, I gave an introduction to the idea that there are two kingdoms, one ruled by the adversary, Satan, and one is ruled by Jesus. Jesus spoke about these two kingdoms, and he calls us to move from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms are dramatically different from one another. We don't understand exactly how God sees the world. Words mean different things, pain and hardship and suffering. In part two, I discussed those things, how they fit into the kingdom of God. In this world, hardship, pain, and suffering are to be avoided. And yet in the kingdom of God, they are tools that God uses to form his character in us. In part three, I talked about the different meanings of words, love and joy and hate and life and death. These fundamental words that talk about what it is to be human, love, joy, life, death, hatred, They mean different things to God, and even the very hardest things that we face, he can use for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, before I move on, I'd like to read something that I just wrote to a a friend who contacted me after listening to part two. My friend said that they have been going through some real serious conflict, and it was hard. It was really hard. And the listener was encouraged by the message that God is using hard things to work out his will and to form his character in us. So here's what I wrote to the listener. I know how difficult it can be to work through conflict. As you mentioned, it can be crippling. We long for unity and we're heartbroken when we don't have it. I've often been encouraged by something someone said a long time ago. It's impossible to offend a corpse. As we die to ourselves then we can function in difficult situations without taking offense. We can be free from bitterness if we surrender our expectations of anything good coming to us. Of course, the Lord promises good things, but the path to receiving his blessings is one of self-denial. Proverbs says that an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Sometimes a great expression of love is clear, honest communication. So, think of your confrontations as being an expression of love. Consider the needs of people with whom you are in conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. In the future, I'll probably share more things like this. I have various messages across my desk, and I want to encourage people in their walk. And that was something that I thought might be encouraging to others who are listening. So, last week, we discussed the meaning of different words. This week, we're going to look at a few things that are very encouraging to me, and they're 
very countercultural to people who are living by the world's ways. Well, the first question that I want to discuss is how do we gain a meaningful life? Human beings want to have meaning. I think we're made for that. And how does God say that we have a meaningful life? Well, what does the world say? When I do this teaching, I'll ask that question and then listen for answers from the people who were attending. What does the world say about how we gain a meaningful life? I'll let you think about that question. Of course, the world says we have to work hard and make a way for ourselves, exert our personalities, or gratify our desires. That's what the world says is the way to a meaningful life. But what does Jesus say about this very question? In Matthew 16, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Well, let me say a few words about that last sentence. What good is it if we gain the entire world and yet forfeit our soul? How can Jesus say that? Well, the world is not eternal, but your soul is eternal. And what good is it to gain something that is not eternal and give up the very thing that is eternal? I want to say this pretty directly, just as Jesus did. If anyone wants to be a disciple of Jesus, that person must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. Self-denial, cross-bearing, suffering, and a life of faithfulness, of walking with Jesus, those are the necessary things for someone to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. It's the opposite of what the world would say, of course. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for him, then you save it. The surest way to lose what you value most is to try to save your own life. The best way to get that which will last for eternity is to lay down your life for Christ. Boy, I tell you, that's a different kingdom. Here's another question. Who wins? How do you come out ahead? It's one thing to have a meaningful life, but how do you come out ahead? How do you succeed? In Luke 14, we read Jesus saying, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. And then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Boy, the kingdom of God is, seems upside down. It's foolishness to this world. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. I have an interesting story about this very thing actually happened to me. I was attending the wedding of a friend, and I arrived a little late at the rehearsal dinner. And when I came in, I just took a seat back by the door where I walked in. 
And I was there for a little while, and then the groom, a friend of mine, saw me at a distance and said, Mike, Mike, come on up here, come on, sit with me. And everybody then noticed me. <laughs> it was exactly what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is saying, if we exalt ourselves, we're going to be humbled. But if we humble ourselves, then we'll be exalted. Jesus did this very thing. The scriptures say that we should have the same attitude as Jesus because he didn't consider his place, his equality with God, something to be grasped or held on to. He humbled himself. And because he became nothing, because he went all the way down to the lowest place, he was exalted. If we exalt ourselves, then we will be humbled. Remember, there will be a day when every knee shall bow to Jesus. Every single one in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If we want to succeed, then we must humble ourselves. And that word succeed is in quotes. If we want to be first, then we have to humble ourselves. And in due time, the Lord himself will lift us up. That is a different kingdom. Now I want to move into a discussion of Jesus himself. What kind of king do we have in the kingdom of God? I believe that human beings were made to live in a kingdom under a king who makes the rules. You know, human beings really are like sheep, and we need a shepherd. We need someone to guide us, care for us. The problem with kings on earth is that most of them are bad. Power goes to their heads. They become corrupt, accepting bribes. They're more concerned with influence and status than with the people they rule. And even if they are concerned with the people they rule, they're imperfect and are subject to all kinds of temptations and perhaps uh, deception, manipulation. In Jesus, we have a king who lays down his life for everybody. We have a king who is especially concerned about the poor. We have a king who considers the very best for his people. In Jesus, we have a king who is not interested in fame or wealth, or power. We have a king who wants to serve everyone, even at the cost of his own life. In Jesus, we have a king who is the wisest man in history. He is also the most loving. He is also perfectly just and perfectly merciful. That is Jesus, the Christ, our king. Now, what kind of man is he? Uh, I want to talk about a couple of things that Jesus said that reveal something that's quite astonishing, really. In Matthew chapter 8, this is the story about Jesus and the centurion. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that last bit is what I want to focus on. Jesus says there's going to be a great feast this wedding supper of the Lamb, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the people who live by faith will be joined together at this great feast. This is a feast in the kingdom of heaven at a banquet table. 
So let's keep that in mind as we read in Luke chapter 12, the words of Jesus. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he gets home. Well, let's stop there for a moment, and this is what Jesus is saying to us. We need to be watchful. We can't, well, we shouldn't say, well, I'm a believer, I'm fine, I'm saved, I've got my ticket to heaven, and then live the life that we want to live, focusing on ourselves. We need to be watchful, waiting for him, listening for his voice, ready to serve him. In verse 37 of Luke 12, Jesus said, it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Now look at this next sentence. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he, the master, will dress himself to serve and will have them, his servants, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. This is what's astonishing. It really touches my heart that Jesus is saying that he will dress himself to serve at this feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He will dress himself to serve, and he will have us sit at the table, and he will come and wait on us. Jesus, the king of all creation, will serve. Now think about that. And this is exactly what he did when he washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. He took the place of a servant then, and he's going to do it again. That's our king. That is the king of the kingdom of heaven with perfect integrity. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And therefore, we should love him. He gives us so much hope, and he has so much authority, and yet he really does care for us. Well, how does this kingdom of God come onto the earth? I don't believe the scriptures say that we'll ever have a perfect kingdom of God on this earth until the judgment day, until the Lord himself comes back. But how does this kingdom come into the kingdom on earth? We're told to be in the world, but not of the world. Well, the Lord gives spiritual gifts so that we'll do what Jesus does. Remember, he gives his spiritual gifts in Acts chapter 2, not in Acts chapter 28. He gives gifts early because he wants his power to flow and he wants people to experience his power. He wants all people to know about him, so he gives spiritual gifts even before we may be spiritually mature. That's why we have quite a few letters in the New Testament is because people were gifted and yet they weren't quite yet mature and they needed instruction. He can cause stones to worship. He can cause a donkey to speak the truth. So there is no room for pride if he uses me or you to bring his word into this world. He gives his gifts so that we will pass those blessings on to others. And in doing that, then we share in the blessing. The Lord gives spiritual fruit so that we'll be like Jesus. There are gifts and there are fruit. And as I mentioned earlier, in Philippians, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how does this kingdom come into this world? Well, we must be willing to become nothing, even less than the worst you can imagine. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus. He became nothing, the very lowest. Only then will we be exalted to the place that God has for us. That is the way of the kingdom of God. The Lord teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And how is his will done in heaven? Well, I can think of a few things. His will is done in heaven quickly, happily, and with loving abandon. Well, I hope these talks on the kingdom of heaven have been a help. Let's always remember that our lives here on this earth are not about us. They're about the Lord, his goodness. We're only going to find true meaning as we surrender our lives and trust him with everything. He promises not only to give us good teaching, he promises his spirit. And in future talks, particularly about the covenants of God, I'll really emphasize that he has not left us as orphans. He is with us to the very end of the age. So, until the next time we talk, I do pray that God will continue to reveal his ways and his word to you because his paths are good and they always bring peace to the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.